We come now to the preaching of the Word, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 this morning. You'll find this uh, before you, not in your order of service, which we've normally done, but we've ordered new pew Bibles, a blue hardback Bible that will be found under the chair in front of you, and you'll find this on page 939 in the pew Bible. Romans chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 16 and 17, but our focus this morning will be on verse 16, as found in your pew Bible on page 939. I guess chair Bible is more technically accurate, but old habits. Romans chapter 1, beginning at the 16th verse, give your attention now to the reading of God's holy and errant and life-giving word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's holy and errant and life-giving word. Give your attention now to prayer as we ask the Spirit to illumine our time by his grace. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and how you and the Son have sent to us the Holy Spirit. How he carried along men of old to write your very words through their pen and how even now he can give light to our minds through Christ so that we might understand your holy word. Do this, we pray, as your word is read and preached in our midst. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. On January 8, 1964, then-President Lyndon B. Johnson declared war. He did not declare war on a foreign nationality or a terrorist group. He declared war on poverty in his State of the Union address and laid out an ambitious goal for a group of federal-funded programs that were designed to end poverty. This later became known as the Economic Opportunity Act that established the Office of Economic Opportunity and has spawned an innumerable amount of well-funded federal programs since that time. Now, I could give you the statistics on poverty in our country and show you through them that we have not actually eliminated poverty. I trust I won't have to do that in our own experience. We know that to be the case. We could have simply looked at the words of our Lord, who says, the poor you shall have with you always. But the war on poverty, as many other uh, good attempts to alleviate suffering in this world, prove a fact that good intentions combined with a powerlessness to defeat those problems will always end in frustration. That's true for individual humans, it's true for families, it's true for uh, countries that you might have the best of intentions, but if you don't have the power to actually change the problem you're seeking to address, you will be frustrated no matter how well placed your intentions are. Well, the good news, though, that the Apostle Paul brought to the Roman world 
was that he was coming proclaiming not an initiation by men, not something that he thought up in his own imagination or in the thoughts of a wise philosopher, but rather he came proclaiming the power of God unto salvation. And that's why he was bold in his proclamation of the gospel along with the rest of the apostles all throughout their world and why that same message is going forth saving souls even to this very day. Now, as we come to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we have been studying this book verse by verse, and as we've concluded looking at verse 15, we are now transitioning to a new part of the book of Romans. The first 15 verses included Paul's introduction to the Roman Christians, along with his apostolic blessing to them. And then he explained in the verses up to verse 15 why he has longed to be with them in the church at Rome, but has been hindered by God. And now as we turn to verses 16 and 17, we come to, as it were, the thesis statement for the rest of the book of Romans. Here in verse 16 and 17, Paul gives a summary statement of what he believes about the gospel, and indeed, the theme of the gospel is what dominates the rest of the book of Romans. He will talk about the sinfulness of mankind and our need for justification by faith alone in the first five chapters in particular. Then he will talk about how the power of the gospel brings transformation, breaking the power of sin over us and enabling us to live in a holy way in chapter 6 through chapter 8, explaining the graciousness of the gospel being founded not in human will, but in the will of God from eternity past in predestination up through Romans 11. And then in Romans 12 to the end, giving the application of the gospel and what does it look like when you live in light of the good news of Christ for your own life and in the community of the church in chapters 12 to the end of the book. This morning, we're going to look at, in particular, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul proclaims it in verse 16. And there are just three brief things I'd like us to look at this morning. First, the shame of the gospel. Why is it that Paul seems to begin by uh, sensing that he needs to say, I have no shame in the gospel of Christ? Second, talking about the power of the gospel. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because of the power to save that is contained in its message. And then finally, the scope of the gospel. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it brings salvation to the whole world. So as we begin looking at the shame of the gospel, we notice that Paul begins by noting that he is not ashamed. Look with me at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Why does Paul begin by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Why does he begin introducing the great theme of Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of this theme. In fact, I am proud of it and I have no shame connected with it whatsoever. There are perhaps many reasons, but it's most likely, that Paul begins this way because perhaps there was a rumor going around Rome that Paul was not willing to come and preach the gospel in Rome and he was delaying or dragging his feet because he was fearful of preaching under the very shadow of the emperor. 
Some maybe thought it's one thing for Paul to go out into the hinterlands and to some of the other provinces, but he perhaps is losing his nerve and not willing to come to the very seat of imperial Roman authority under the shadow of the emperor, nor is he willing to stand under the great temples of the Parthenon and the great uh, Greek and Roman gods enshrined there, and that's why he's not come to Rome yet. But Paul says very clearly, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The fact that Paul begins by saying he is not ashamed shows us, though, that there were in his day and in his age temptations to be ashamed of the gospel. And I think as we look at our own culture, we can understand why Paul began by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because those same temptations are present with us today, are they not? Why would Christians today be ashamed of the gospel? And that's a fundamental question you need to ask yourself as we look at verse 16, is am I ashamed of the gospel? Some might be ashamed of the gospel because of the supernatural nature of it. If you begin by proclaiming the message that God through his son has provided salvation for all those who have sinned and have strayed from his path, that contains in it the assumption of what we find in Genesis chapter 1, that God is indeed the creator of the world in the space of six days, all out of nothing and all very good, but that through man's first sin, this world that was good from the hand of God is twisted and distorted through sin, and that's why we stand in need of salvation. At that point, many in our culture would look at us and say, whoa, wait a minute, are you telling me that you actually believe that God created the world out of nothing in the space of six days? That's absurd. That's preposterous. Don't you know the scientific consensus that the world was created over billions of years through a gradual process of evolutionary change so that there's no uh, historical atom or fall in that way? I was uh, in PetSmart the other day with one of my children, and a woman walked up with her dog, and, you know, of course, my son found the dog to be very interesting, so we started talking. And my son had a little image of a dinosaur on one of his shoes, and the woman said, Oh, well, look at that. You have a dinosaur on your shoe. Don't you think some of these birds and some of these reptiles are descendants of those dinosaurs? And my son looked up and he said, No, I don't think that's right. Uh, <laughs> applaud my son for having a good sense of how to respond. But it's one thing for me and my son to say that in PetSmart. It's another thing to be in a biology or a chemistry or an English classroom in the university and to have a professor look at you and say, do you actually believe the story of Adam and Eve? Do you actually believe there is a God who's created everything? Don't you know the world can be explained purely through natural means? So we can be ashamed of the gospel because of its supernatural quality. We can also be ashamed of the gospel because of the offense of the gospel. Where does the gospel begin? The gospel does not begin as a motivational talk. The gospel does not begin with seven principles on how to live your best life now or how to win friends and influence people. It begins with the message that you are corrupt, that you are a sinner, that you stand before God justly condemned for your sins and that you have no way to commend yourself to God unless God's own son lived a perfect life for you and died in your stead. 
That's not what you call a positive message that our culture likes to hear. And in fact, there are many people who are glad to hear of a sentimental version of the gospel, but when you start talking about sin and condemnation and the need for salvation, many say, whoa, I'm not interested in going any farther. We see an example of this in Scripture in Paul before Felix, the Roman governor, who seemed to show some interest in what Paul was saying about the gospel in Acts 24. But in Acts 24, verses 24 to 25, when Paul starts speaking about the condemnation of sin, Felix all of a sudden finds this not something he wants to hear. Verse 24, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. We're told in the text that Felix seemed to want a bribe in order to deal kindly with Paul. Yet, when Paul began speaking about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment of God on sin, all of a sudden Felix found a lot of other things that were important that he needed to attend to, and Paul was not one of them. Going into our culture and saying the message of good news begins with you being completely unable to save yourself is something that is offensive to many. Finally, some might be ashamed of the gospel because of the hatred of the gospel that we see in our day and age. The fact of the matter is, as we look at our culture, there are many things that are assumed in the gospel that Paul will talk about in Romans that are completely contrary to the intuitions of our culture. Paul will talk in Romans 1 about how men have distorted the created order, how they have worshipped the creature rather than the creator, and so they subvert and undercut the natural order of men and women and the plan that God had in Genesis. We're living in a culture where things that are totally contrary to the word of God, in particular the order of nature, are being celebrated. In 2023, President Joe Biden celebrated both Transgender Visibility Day in the spring and declared Transgender Day on November 20th in 2023. When he was giving an interview and was asked by a reporter what he thought of two initiatives in particular going through the Florida State Legislature, a bill to prohibit men from participating in women's sports and vice versa, and a bill that would require you to use the bathroom of your gender, which always struck me as, as odd that we have to have rules like that. He replied with this, what's going on in Florida is, as my mother would say, close to sinful. It's just terrible what they're doing. So we live in a day and an age where the most powerful man on the planet would look at rules saying you must participate in a sport of your own gender or go to a bathroom of your own gender as close to sinful. Well, as Christians who adhere to the gospel, we would have to say you don't understand the word sinful if that's how you wish to use it. That which is sinful is contrary to the plan and intention of God and creation, and anything that subverts that is sinful, and it must be addressed only by Jesus Christ. And it is Christ who came not to affirm all of our sinful inclinations, but to contradict them, to provide forgiveness for them, and to provide power to change them. So there are many reasons in our culture why it can be easy to be ashamed of the gospel. The question for you is, are you ashamed of the gospel? Is sharing the good news something 
that you don't wish to do or something that you want to do, but when the opportunity comes, you find yourself saying the awkwardness of this, the tension that this would produce, the relations that it might cost me is not worth it. And even if I won't admit that, I would not share the gospel with someone else. With as you take courage, because the same gospel that you are proclaiming is the gospel that took Paul from being someone who hated Jesus Christ and someone who persecuted the church and someone who killed Christians to being the one through whom God brought the gospel to most of the Roman world. And that same transforming gospel is what is committed to us to use in a hostile culture to bring those to light who dwell in darkness. Moreover, take courage that as you think about the awkwardness and the tension that comes for us in our culture, we need to take courage by looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ who have a far more difficult set of circumstances. The shame that might come upon us for the sake of the gospel is nowhere near what it's like in Indonesia, in certain parts of Africa, particularly in Muslim-dominated lands, where to profess Jesus openly might lead to your summary execution. And so we proclaim the same gospel that transforms lives, that transformed the Apostle Paul, that is able to stand even against the most intensive hatred with a message of the love of God and forgiveness of sinners. So as Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let us also be bold to proclaim the gospel in our day and age. But Paul goes on to explain one of the reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the first thing is the power of the gospel. Look again at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. The gospel is seen to be the power of God, the ability, the way to make change with the goal of salvation. Now, as we talk about salvation, salvation is something that is a common word in our culture. We think about it regularly, but in the scripture, what does it mean to be saved? In the scripture, to be saved or to be delivered from something in the Old and in the New Testament carries the idea of being delivered from danger or being rescued from some imminent threat against you. When Paul uses the term that it is the power of God unto salvation, as you look in the Old and New Testament as the word salvation is used, it's used in a broad sense to encompass everything about our salvation. When I was a boy, I would often hear in some of the churches and schools that I was at, have you been saved? That means, have you repented of your sins and had faith in Jesus Christ? And that is a legitimate use of that term. But as you see Paul using this term throughout uh, the whole of Romans and the term used throughout the whole of the New Testament, salvation is something that is past, present, and future. Salvation is when you are savingly united to Christ, but part of your salvation is also being continually transformed into the image of Christ. Not just being legally made righteous with God, but also being transformed into his image. And we will receive our full salvation at that last day when we receive our resurrected bodies and have the full process of salvation completed for us. So salvation is holistic, but what is it exactly that we are saved from? Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Well, it is the power of God unto salvation to save us from what? 
what we are saved from is sin. And that might seem rather straightforward. Perhaps you've heard that joke about the man who, uh, when his pastor came to visit him one day, said, oh, what did you think of the sermon on Sunday? And he had been sleeping through the sermon. And so he said, oh, yeah, you talked about sin, and I'm definitely against it. Well, in the Christian tradition, sin is obviously something that we're opposed to, but sin is a description of your fallen state in Adam through which you are delivered only through the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Why do we need to be delivered from sin? Because sin carries with it guilt. The first thing about sin that we need to be delivered from that Paul will speak about it being remedied in the gospel is the guilt that we have from sin, the fact that we are legally considered before the bar of God's justice to be worthy of condemnation because we have done things that are wrong. In fact, as you look at Romans, you find two ways in which sinners are guilty, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, and we'll get there probably not in the next couple of weeks, but sometime down the line. In Romans 5, Paul talks about how all of us are declared sinners because of Adam. In his first act of unrighteousness, he was our covenant head, so that when he sinned, we all fell in him, so that from the moment we are conceived or come forth from the womb, we are already legally sinners because Adam's guilt is imputed to us. But to that, we add to our own guilt by sinning against God's law and increasing our own guiltiness. And we need salvation from that status, and that is found only in Jesus Christ, as Paul will explain in Romans 3:21 and following. But not only does sin have guilt that we need to be delivered from, but it also has power that we need to be delivered from. Even if you could remove the guilt that we have from our sin, we would still have the power of sin over us, power to direct us, to guide us, that controls us in how we behave. If you see the movie Shawshank Redemption, it's a story about uh, this man, Andy Dufresne, who is wrongfully uh, accused of the murder of his wife. And when he's in prison, he meets a man by the name of Red. And the interesting thing is that Red, after decades of his life, the majority of his adult life being spent in prison, he's finally paroled as an old man, and he goes out into the world. And what you would think is he would enjoy freedom, and he would relish not having to be in bed for lights out at a certain time, to have to ask his uh, uh, supervisor or any of the prison guards, can I go do this, can I go do that? But when he gets out of prison... He finds he can't deal with freedom because he has been so habituated to the prison system that he, as it were, carries his prison bars with him and the power of jail, as it were, is still over him. He was at work and he asked permission to go take a restroom break and his boss said to him, Red, you, you don't need to ask me to do this. And he narrates, I can't help it. I can't help but think as though I'm still in prison. And for us who have been under the power of sin... Even if guilt could be cleansed by our own efforts, we would still have the power of sin that must be broken, and that's only through the power of Jesus Christ being applied to us, which is why Paul calls the gospel the power of God unto salvation. But finally, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's not just the guilt and the power, but also the pollution of sin that we need to be delivered from. We need to be delivered from the legal condemnation that we're under as sinners. We need to be delivered from the power of sin 
But as you and I look honestly at our own lives, we can see how sin leaves shipwreck in every part of our life and how there is a corruption and a pollution and a filthiness that comes with sin that needs to be washed and cleansed away. One of my favorite uh, preachers from the last century was a fundamentalist Presbyterian preacher by the name of Ian Paisley. Uh, he was a remarkable man. Uh, he was one of those people who, if he were to preach here, we'd have to turn the microphone off because when he whispered, it was louder than most men shouting. And so he would never use a, a microphone whenever he preached, by and large, except for recording purposes. And when he was starting up his church, uh, he was very zealous for evangelism there in Northern Ireland, where he lived and ministered at the time. And uh, they went out into the community, and they wanted their church to be a place where sinners would be saved. And so they went out into the community and said, who's the worst sinner in this neighborhood? And back in the 50s and 60s in Northern Ireland, you could go out with that question and people would actually respond rather than, what are you talking about? They'd say, oh, that guy right over there. Because uh, they all knew what they meant. There was a man who lived in a complete hovel of a situation in an apartment where it was nasty and filthy and he was known for being a drunk who was rude to everyone. So they went and did door-to-door -door evangelism, knocked on his door, and when he opened said, we'd like to tell you about the love of Christ and the forgiveness of the gospel. He shouted at them, cursed them, and shut the door. Well, they kept going back week after week. And when he'd see them on the streets, the me and Paisley or members of the church would go up and say, sir, we'd love to share the gospel with you. He would just shout profanities at them and be drunk all the time. Well, one day when they went and knocked on the door, the door was unlocked and he didn't respond. So they went in. And they were horrified by the terrible filth. The place had not been cleaned in years. The windows were dirty. There was no light coming in. It smelled. And there he was sitting on this orange cart because there was no furniture to be seen in the room. And so they began talking to him. They pull up another orange cart and sit down and talk with him. And the man says to him, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be talking to me. And as time goes on, he eventually opens up and tells them, I'm a drunk. I've been a drunk my whole life. And one night when I was in a drunken rage, I accidentally injured my wife, and she died from those injuries. The police could never pin it on me, so I never went to jail from it. But I have to live with that. You don't want me. You don't want to talk to me. And they said to him, that's exactly why we want to talk to you, because we have the message of salvation that alone can bring you deliverance from your sins. That man eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ. People in the neighborhood came up to the church one day and said, hey, what's going on with that guy? Well, why do you ask? His windows are open. His house is clean. What on earth is going on? I actually spoke to him, and he wasn't drunk in the middle of the day. He came to saving faith in Christ, joined the church, and he died, a member of the choir, singing about the grace of Jesus Christ from the pollution of sin. Paul will tell us in Romans, the gospel is able to cleanse to the uttermost those who put their faith to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. The question for you this morning is, have you believed in Jesus Christ? Do you know the power of the gospel? Can you look at yourself and say, I know I have been forgiven by Christ. I know I have been freed by Christ. I know I have been cleansed by Christ. If that's not the case for you today, and if you're carrying around the guilt of your sin, the corruption of your sin, and are living under the power of sin, 
This morning I share with you the power of the gospel and the salvation for all them that believe that if you will repent of your sins and have faith in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven, you will be delivered, you will be set free from your sins. Oh, come to Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you know that you have been delivered and you know the forgiveness of God, do you not need to be reminded of the gospel? Do you not need to be reminded that, praise God, you are not the man you want to be, but you're not the man you used to be, and you know one day you will look like your Savior, Jesus Christ, in body and in soul because of the power of the gospel. Yes, you sin, but you are forgiven by Christ. Yes, you might struggle with sin for 10, 20, or 30 years, but your struggle against sin is never futile because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation so that it does not have dominion over you. You belong to Christ. Though all of us who have lived long enough can look at decisions that we've made in our life and say, if I could change that decision, I would, because it wreaked havoc in my life and brought with it much corruption and pollution. You have been cleansed by Christ, and your future is not one where the pollution you experience now is going to be the final word, but rather in the new heavens and the new earth. You will have a purified soul and body and be able to have perfect communion with your God and your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are saved, be reminded today about the power of the gospel unto your salvation. Well, finally, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, not just because of uh, the dramatic power that it has, but also the scope that it has. Look with me at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Who is the gospel for? Who can be saved? In Paul's day, this was a very pressing issue because for thousands of years, all the oracles of God, the revelation of God, the prophecies of the Messiah were all contained within the people of Israel. Jesus was the Jewish descendant of Israel's great king who brought a message of salvation, ministering for three years in and around the Holy Land. And all of the original apostles were indeed Jewish. So the question was, is the gospel just for those who are descendants of Abraham, or is it for the whole world? Paul says here first that the gospel is first to the Jews meaning that they were the ones who were the closest to the gospel because of the covenant inheritance that they had. They grew up like Timothy, being taught the scriptures and taught to look for the one who will be like Moses and thinking about the Messiah who would come and save them. Moreover, as you look at the gospel, both in the ministry of our Lord Jesus and the apostles, the gospel began in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the areas connected with the Jewish people. But importantly, when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first, he is implying and assuming what he's going to explain in Romans 1 and 2, and that is that Jewish people are not automatically saved. Just by being born into the nation of Israel, it does not give you a privileged status whereby you are automatically saved. As Paul will say, those who are Jewish had the law of God committed unto them, and they broke that law, and because of that, they stand in need of salvation. And so any sort of theology that you might run into that treats the Jewish people as 
automatically saved because they're part of the chosen people of God does not understand that the gospel says everyone needs to be saved by Christ and by Christ alone. And so for those who are descendants of Abraham, they must accept by faith the promises of Christ in order to be saved. So the gospel went to them first, but then also to the Greek. To the Gentiles, that is, salvation has come. This perhaps doesn't surprise us today, but it is most surprising that someone like Paul would write this sentence in the first century because you have to remember, Paul was Jewish. Paul was not only Jewish, he belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, and so he was of the most strict observance of the Old Testament. For that sort of person, the Gentile was someone who was to be associated with pigs and things that are unclean which even to this day, uh, Jewish people did not in that century have a positive association with bacon like most people do in our culture, so that would be a bad thing. There were some Jews who had the practice that whenever they came back from business in the Gentile land, when they came to the threshold of the Holy Land, they would kick the dust off their feet and wash their feet to symbolize leaving all the corruption of the Gentile world behind as they tread back on the promised land. Paul, coming out of that world, says the power of the gospel is not just for the Jews, also for the Greeks, also for the Gentiles, so that the gospel is for everyone. At the beginning, I told you and mentioned the war on poverty. A great idea, but it really hasn't worked out that well, and in fact, perhaps in some ways, we've made the issue even worse. But the fact of the matter is that in Jesus Christ, we find the man who is the God-man, who all authority on heaven and on earth has been committed to him. And so he said to the apostles and to us today, go into all the world, baptizing those who profess faith in my name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them everything that I have taught you. We are going forward into a world that seems completely opposed to the gospel, but with the power of one who has not only the intention to bring about salvation, but the power to do it. And so it should be an encouragement to us and to you and me as we go out into the world with the message of the gospel. You might be tempted to look at this world and say there's no way it can get any crazier. Never say that, particularly out loud, because the very next day you'll discover the world has a lot more bandwidth for crazy than you estimated initially. But no matter how upside down the world might seem, the message that we go to hurting men and women, boys and girls, who are broken in their sin is not some good human plan or initiative, but the power of God unto salvation through the finished work of Christ. And so let us go with confidence to the world that is dying with the love of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his finished work on our behalf. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, and we pray that you would help us not to be ashamed, but like the Apostle Paul, to revel in your power unto salvation for all those who believe. Do this, we ask in Jesus' name.